0: My name is Jordan, I'm the Director of Youth and Discipleship here at The Shore. If you have your Bibles, go ahead, open them up to Matthew chapter 22 and also flip open to Luke chapter 10 and just put your finger there, just a little sneak peek of where we're going. But Matthew 22 is where we're gonna start today. And if you've been with us for the last couple weeks, you've seen that there's been multiple attempts by religious leaders trying to trap and trick Jesus into saying something blasphemous, right? So two weeks ago, we had a group of Pharisees come and try to trap Jesus, Then last week, a group of Sadducees came and tried to trap Jesus. And now here we go again, the Pharisees are back. They think they got him here. They're hoping that by answering their questions wrong, Jesus will either one, prove to be a heretic or two, at the very least, they hope he'll say something that will divide his followers and decrease his popularity. But here's the problem with trying to trap Jesus. He's God, So it's gonna be very difficult for them to pull this off, but let's see what happens here. Matthew 22, verse 34 to 45. I'm just gonna read the first six verses here. I'll pray and we'll get after it. Verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Let's pray. Jesus, we just pray that you would be so present here this morning and you would just reveal to us areas that we need to love you more And love our neighbors more. God, I pray that as we leave this place today, our affections for you would be stirred up and we'd ultimately love you more than we did coming in here today. I pray for anyone coming in here this morning who's just hurting or broken or searching for joy in their life. Jesus, I pray that you would reveal yourself in a powerful way and just remind us that you paid the price for all of our shame and guilt, Lord. So would you just draw us closer to you in this word today, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So this, this story starts in Matthew 22 with a lawyer coming to ask Jesus a question. Now, this isn't a lawyer how you and I think of a lawyer, but rather this is an expert in religious law. And so he's asking Jesus, what's the great commandment? Let's look at it again here really quickly. Verse 36, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, this is a really interesting stage that's happening here because we have Jesus Christ, the greatest person to ever walk on the face of the earth, being asked, what is the greatest commandment? So we're in the presence of the greatest person telling us the greatest thing ever. We better tune in to what he's going to say here. And ultimately he says, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. He's saying that everything hangs on God's purpose to be loved and for his people to love each other. This fulfills the Old Testament law and prophets. And I want to focus on the first great commandment here just for a moment, then we're going to dive headlong into the second. So the first one of loving God with all our hearts, all our soul, and all our minds. We learn first and foremost that the primary imperative in this command is to love, it's to love, it's it's not about knowledge, like as good as it is to study the word of God and meditate on the word of God, this isn't the end, this was meant to be a means to an end, the end is to love God, it's not about knowledge, if it were knowledge, it would be philosophy, like the Greek word for philosophy is philosophia, which means the love of knowledge, that's not what we're after, it's also not about our ministerial activity and how many righteous events we can attend throughout the week versus not attend. Those can be good things. It's also not about how morally upright we can present ourselves or how holy we can present ourselves to other people. Like those are good things, but they're not the end. They're a means to an end. The one end, the one command is to love. Look what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 about love. You've heard this a million times at weddings, but here in a different tone this morning. He says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. He later concludes the chapter in verse 13 saying, so now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is what? Love. And so back here in Matthew 22, all within this one command, Jesus tells us, he tells us the what, the who, the why and the how concerning that love. And we've already seen the what. It's to love. But but he also tells us in this statement, the who. And he gives us three words to help us understand who. He says, Lord, your God. He says, it's the Lord, your God. It's this idea that God doesn't simply want to be prominent or an important part of our lives, but rather he wants to be preeminent and above everything else. He wants our love, our affections, and our worship of him to be greater than everything else in our lives, greater than our careers, greater than our hobbies, greater than even our own families, our spouses, or our children. The first and primary object of our affections, the center of our world by which every other thing in our life should revolve around or orbit around is centrally the love we have for him. And honestly, like for us, especially if you're new in here this morning, doesn't that sound a little bit arrogant or selfish? You know, like, like if I were to stand up here this morning, I got the microphone on, I'm in charge. What you all need to do for a better life is to love me, Jordan. Jordan. Like how arrogant and selfish of a thing for me to ask of you to love an incredibly flawed human being. But for God, it's entirely different. Especially when you understand the why that's packed into this statement. Now, if you look closely in the command, you can see the why we're to love God. And we'll take these three terms again, Lord, your God, and we can break them down into why it's him. Now, in some of your Bibles, this word Lord, not not in the ESV like we use here, but in some of your translations, this word Lord is in all capital letters, maybe even small capital letters. The reason is, is it's letting you know that this is the Hebrew equivalent for the Greek word Yahweh. It's saying that this isn't just any Lord, so it's not like the Lord of an old British household or like Lord Stark or Lord Snow. I hope you don't get that reference. This is the covenant-keeping Lord. This is the Lord who's faithful to his promises, who is merciful, who's righteous, who is gracious, and who's perfect in his affections. There's no one on earth more deserving of love than that kind of Lord. But not only that, because he's the almighty He's the all-powerful, the eternal, the everywhere-present-at-all-times God and the kind of God who stooped down for us, died for us, and loved us. He's not just any Lord, but what is he? He's your God. He's the Lord, your God. And this makes it really interesting and really personal because he's not just some abstract phenomena that we worship from afar, but no, he's here with you now if you believe in him. He's personal. He's the one who's faithful to us. Like many of us in this room have some version of the same testimony in that we were walking apart from God, a life full of sin, a life full of rebellion. In the midst of our darkness, we realized that we were empty and we needed help. And so Jesus revealed himself to us in a powerful way, forgave us with his blood, sealed us with the Holy Spirit so we might have eternal life with him. Like we all have some version of that story. And when you think upon your story, it's not just Jesus, savior of the world, but it's Jesus, your savior. It's not just Jesus, the lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, but it's Jesus, the lamb of God, who takes away your sin. My sin. He's a personal God. And so our lives are to be filled with God's faithfulness to us because he's a personal God and we're to love him above all else because he has loved us better than anyone ever has or ever will. That's why John tells us in 1 John that the reason we love him is because he loved us first. And if it wasn't for Jesus Christ being the example, you know, coming to earth Putting on human flesh, living a really hard life, dying a really brutal death for us, raising from death to save, our, save us from our sins. If it wasn't for his model, we would never know what true love is. And don't we in our culture have such a diminished view of what love is? Like, just listen to the world around you. We say this word love like it means absolutely nothing. Like, you'll hear someone in one sentence say, Oh man, I just, I love God. I love my wife, I love tacos. Like what, are those comparable? Like we'll throw around love like it's nothing. We need to look to Jesus to be the model of what love is. And so he says, love the Lord your God. And it's in this command that we've seen so far, the what we're to do, we're to love. The who we're to love, it's the Lord your God. The why we're to love him because of who he is and what he's done. And then he's gonna tell us how we're to do that. And he gives us three aspects that are really all tied together in one. The first way he says to love me is with all of your heart. All of your heart. All your emotion. All your affection. Unreservedly. And here's the really great thing about this personal God that we have. Because of who he is, you're loved back by him no matter what. Like you don't have to treat him like we do some of our human relationships. You know, when you're getting to know someone and you're a little bit hesitant to tell them the entirety of your thought process or the entirety of your history or your background because you're worried if they knew who you really were, they wouldn't love you. It's not like that with God. In fact, it's the contrary to that. In Romans 5, we're gonna read it in a little bit. It says that Jesus shows up when we're at our absolute worst and loves us and saves us then so you can be completely open with him. You can lay it all out there for him. He's not gonna be surprised and he's gonna love you no matter what, as you are. And if you're in here this morning and you're thinking, I'm not the kind of person that Jesus could possibly love, you are. You're the exact kind of person he could love. You're the reason he came. He came to save us all when we were at our worst. And so we love him back with all of our heart. And then he says, you're to love me with all your soul. And the root word in the Greek here for the word soul is the word suke, which means breath. And it's the same breath that God uses in the garden to give life to Adam, thus giving life to man, thus giving life to you and I. So the idea is that you're to love God with every ounce of your soul, your breath, your life, your very being, and specifically here in the Greek, this is used in the terms of our will, Or our purpose, the very trajectory of our lives. And finally, he says, You're to love me with all your mind. And it's this idea that we're no longer conformed to the patterns of this world, like how the world thinks about life. We're not to think about life that way. Like as Paul says, we take every thought captive unto devoted obedience to Jesus Christ. In Philippians, he goes on to say in chapter four, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And I love the way that Paul thinks here. Because Paul doesn't ask the question that you and I so frequently like to ask. You know, like we like to ask the question, is this activity, is this group of people, is this show, is this way of life, is it morally good or is it morally bad? Paul doesn't ask that. He asks a different question. He asks, does this thing over here, does it get me more of Jesus Christ or does it rob me from knowing him more? Because if this thing, even if it's a morally good thing, if it's gonna rob me in the slightest from knowing Jesus more, I'm out. I want no part. But if this thing is gonna help me know Jesus more than I do, then I'm chasing that thing like it's gold. Like what a way to live. And so we love him with all of our heart, all of our soul, and all of our mind. And it's easy for me to say that, but like practically, I can't make you love anyone more. So like practically, how do we do this? I wanna give you just three really great ways that you can increase your love for God. The first way, we've already touched on it a little bit, is we just reflect on what God has done for us. Like Romans 5.8, it'll be on the screen. It says that God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He's saying that when we were at our absolute worst, when we were rebelling against God, when we wanted no part of him, Jesus showed up and loved us, even in the midst of our rebellion, even in the midst of us turning our back on him. He showed up and he loved us so much so that if we would believe in him, Right now, when God looks at you, he doesn't see any of the mess in our lives, none of the sin, none of the shame, but rather he sees us as perfect and holy and blameless. That's insane, off the charts love. And so we reflect on that. And I'm not even saying like you get up every day at 5 a.m. and meditate on this for three hours, though I bet that would help. I'm just saying like you pop into your phone a reminder every day at nine o'clock of Romans 5.8. You put John 3.16 on a sticky note, put it on your mirror. You just put practical reminders all around your life so you can constantly reflect on what Jesus has done for you and your love for him will increase. Secondly, we pray. You simply pray, God, help me love you more than I do. James chapter four tells us that you do not have because you do not ask. So we ask that we would love him more than we do. And then third, really practical, we can love God more by keeping the word of God. 1 John 2 tells us that the love of God is perfected in those who keep God's word. Therefore, the more we obey him, the more our love for him will grow. And so we love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. But that's not all. Let's see what he says next here. Let's go Verse 37. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Here's why the second one I feel is so important for us this morning. The initial question that Jesus is asked, it's a singular question. Like, Look at this, verse 36. The lawyer says, teacher, which is the great commandment? Not commandments. He's asking, what is the one great commandment? Jesus gives him one answer, but then he goes out of his way to give a multi-answer here, and he says, also, love your neighbor as yourself. This tells me that this is of utmost importance to the purpose of God, that we love our neighbors, He says, on these two commandments hang the entire law and prophets. Everything hangs on them. If they fall, everything falls. Romans 13 tells us that we owe it to love our neighbor as it fulfills the Old Testament law. And Jesus actually takes this commandment to a whole new level with what he says in John 13. He says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you you also are to love one another. It takes the commandment to a higher level because it's no longer do we just love one another as ourselves, but we love one another as Jesus has loved us. And that's hard because he loved us with no greater love to the point that he gave his life for us. Like he became poor so that we might become rich. But like, what does this look like? Like practically, what does it look like? Who is my neighbor? Because I find this hard in this text here because Jesus says, a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And there's a period there. And then he just, he just goes on to an entirely different topic. So what does it look like to love your neighbor? Who is your neighbor? If only there was somewhere where we knew exactly who our neighbor was. Let's go to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. Setting you up for that one. Luke 10 verse, we'll start in verse 25 and we'll get into this idea of who our neighbor is and how we're to love him a little bit more here. Now, this is gonna look like a parallel text to what we had in Matthew. This is actually an entire different conversation that Jesus is having here, though you'll notice a lot of similarities. This is gonna be a famous parable you guys have probably heard before. Uh, We'll start in verse 25 and let's learn about loving our neighbor. Verse 25, and behold, So similar to Matthew, it's a lawyer, an expert in religious law, asking Jesus a question, and we get a familiar answer, though it doesn't stop there over here. So let's go verse 29. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now the lawyer's asking this because he thinks he has this figured out. He thinks he's nailing this one. He thinks that his neighbor are, is his friends, his family, other Jewish people, his physical neighbors, the people he hangs out with all the time. And he just wants to show off to the people around him that he's nailing this thing. But Jesus is about to derail his entire thought process. Verse 30. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, this is a real road, this one from Jerusalem to Jericho. You can go there today. These guys would have been very familiar with this road. It's about 17 miles long, and an interesting thing about this road, especially as we get further into our story, is it has an elevation drop of 3,000 feet which means you can see way off in the distance of what's happening in front of you. This is also a well-known road for being extremely dangerous. It was nicknamed the Way of Blood or the Bloody Pass because so many robbers would hang out here, attack people and shed blood, a very dangerous road to travel. So let's see what happens here. Verse 31. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now, let me explain culturally what's happening, why the priest is on this road. And I want to cut him a little bit of slack and be more merciful to him than we have been historically. The priest would have been in Jerusalem, spending two weeks at the temple there, taking part in rituals, in sacrifices, in prayer, in study to become spiritually clean. For him to stop and touch or even get within six feet of this guy, it would have broken his religious law and made him spiritually unclean. See, in the law he followed, by getting near or especially by touching this guy, he would have been required to then travel back to Jerusalem and begin his two weeks of rituals again. He would have had to purchase more cattle to sacrifice. He would have had to stand in shame among other sinners, waiting to be pardoned by another priest. And he probably would have been stripped of his priesthood for a season, leaving him and his family without money and without food. This was an unbelievably costly move for him to stop and help this guy. Not to mention knowing the dangers of this road, he could have saw the guy thought he was just faking an injury so that he could trick him to come over and then attack the priest. So when the priest eyes, this was a very risky, very inconvenient move for him to stop. Like he would have been full of shame, full of guilt, and out a whole bunch of money, which means not only will he suffer, but his family will suffer as well. It's not an easy predicament. It would be an unbelievably costly thing for him to engage this man, but ultimately... It's his religion that keeps him from engaging. And so he sees him and just keeps on going, won't help. All right, who's next? Verse 32. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now, in simplest terms, a Levite's like a priest's assistant or like a secretary, he helps out around the temple. And remember, the road is elevated and going down all the way, so he would have seen the priest in a distance coming across this guy and choosing to just continue walking. So in the Levite's mind, he's thinking, if the priest isn't going to touch this guy or help him, then I'm not going to risk my position by helping him either." And so he keeps going. Verse 33. "But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Now, why is it interesting that it's a Samaritan? Well, Samaritans and Israelites or Jews, they hated each other like to the point of death. Samaritans would have been hated so much by the lawyer and the others who asked the question. Like the Israelites destroyed multiple parts of Samaria, including their holy temple. And you can see the hatred they have for each other when later in the parable, the lawyer won't even refer to him as a Samaritan. He won't say the word Samaritan, but he calls him the one who had mercy. And so for this Samaritan to help this guy, a Jewish man, He was taking a huge risk. So why does he do it? Verse 33, we see why. A Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Compassion. So compassion was the driving force for why he wanted to help. Now, if the authorities of the day would have came by as the Samaritan was helping this guy, they would have assumed that the Samaritan was the one who beat him up and they would have arrested him or even worse, maybe even had him killed. Not just that, but it was common culturally in this time that if you had an issue with someone, it would give you the right not only to attack them, but to attack your entire family. So if the robbers who initially beat this guy up came back saw the Samaritan helping him, they could have easily decided, well, let's beat up this Samaritan too, then we'll go to the Samaritan's house and attack his family. It was an unbelievable risk that the Samaritan was taking here. Not not to mention the financial cost he paid to help this guy. See, the first question that the priest and the Levite would ask themselves upon approaching this man, it would have been, what will happen to me if I stop and help this guy? Like, will I get robbed? Will I get attacked? Will it be inconvenient to my life? Will I have to travel way back again? Will it cost me money and time? But what does a Samaritan do? Does he ask any of that? No, he he just offers the man mercy what, what is mercy? What do we learn about what mercy is from this parable? Well, we learn that mercy gives to the needy regardless of the reason. We learn that mercy always costs something and it's always risky. How is it risky? Well, it risks time, health, money, reputation. The priest would have had to risk impurity The Levite knew he could lose his position in the church or he could have become the target of the robbers. The Samaritan risked being beaten, being arrested, being killed, and he risked his own bank account. But here's the thing about mercy. Mercy cancels debts. Mercy cancels debts. Like, did the Samaritan ask the hurt man for anything in return? Like, does he come back a few days later when he's all better? Like, hey man, remember when I took care of you, you want to pay me back and maybe throw in a little extra something? Like, No. He doesn't ask for anything in return. He just shows mercy. See, this is a picture of one, how we ought to love our neighbor and two, more importantly, it's a picture of how Jesus loves us. Everything in the Bible, everything that we read here from Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation, it points to what Jesus did for us on the cross. It's not 66 different stories. It's ultimately one story about what Jesus did for us and what he did for us was show us mercy that we did not deserve and that we cannot and will not ever be able to repay. And guess what? He doesn't ask us to repay. He doesn't give us what we deserve, thank God, but he gives us what we don't deserve because he loves us so much. And I imagine when Jesus was dying on the cross, clinging to life, breathing his last breaths, I imagine he sees all of us like the man who was left for dead on the side of the road, broken, hurting, or in pain, alone, hopeless, in need of saving. And Jesus shows up, doesn't ask for anything in return, but gave his life for us with joy so that we might experience eternal life with him. There's a great quote with an unknown source that says, he came to pay a debt he did not owe because we owed a debt we could not pay. And that's the good news that we hold on to so tightly. And because he's done that for us, we're called to extend the same mercy to people in our lives like the Samaritan does. The great Martin Luther King Jr. the night before he was assassinated, he gave a speech and he included a part on this parable as him and his wife had previously traveled to it. And he said he said this about it. He said as soon as we got on that road, I said to my wife, I can see why Jesus used this as a setting for his parable. It's a meandering road. In the days of Jesus it came to be known as the bloody pass and you know it's possible that the priest and the levite looked over that man on the ground and wondered if the robbers were still around or it's possible that they felt the man on the ground was merely faking and he was acting like he had been robbed in order to seize him them sorry in order to lure him over and seize him and so the first question that the priest asked the first question that the levite asked was if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? And I know the culture and the world in which we live right now, like it's very much an eye for an eye. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. It's that kind of place. But can you imagine like what this world would look like? Let's go even smaller. Can you imagine what this community of faith here would look like? If we didn't see other people as opportunities for us to gain, to get something in return from, but rather as opportunities for us to simply love and give help and not expect anything in return, just like Jesus has done for us. Can you imagine living in a community like that? All right, let's finish off this parable, then we'll jump back and finish Matthew. Verse 36. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. So who's your neighbor? Well, it's anyone in need of compassion. Anyone in need of mercy regardless of background or history or race or ethnicity, regardless of whether they can do anything for you in return. And I I don't think this plays out like it does in the parable in our lives. Like I don't think a lot of us are coming across half dead people, but it's going to play out in the smaller, more practical things in our lives. Like maybe it's something just like providing a meal for someone in need. Like helping someone move. Maybe it's something like saying, How are you to that person that no one else wants to talk to? And really like asking, How are you? Not just the the casual one we like to do, but how can I help? Is there anything I can do for you? We're gonna have to wrestle with this individually of areas where we can love our neighbor more. And what's the payoff? Like, why do this? What's the point of living like this? Well, do you remember the first question the lawyer asked here? said, How do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds in this parable saying, When one truly loves God and loves his neighbor, they're on the road that leads to eternal life. Yeah. All right, let's jump back to Matthew and we'll, we'll finish off our text here. Matthew 22, verses 41 to 46. And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. So we have these multiple attempts by the Pharisees and the Sadducees to trick Jesus. Jesus gets out of all of them, no problem. Remember, being the whole God thing helps. And then he has them on the ropes, so he goes after the Pharisees and he asks them a question What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? He's asking them this because they're missing the point of who Jesus actually is. They fail to see that he's the Messiah. And so he asks them, What do you think about the Christ? And in that question, he pinpoints the precise truth that the Pharisees had missed concerning him. And honestly, the point that so many people today miss concerning about him, that he is the Son of God, that he's God in the flesh. And so he asks, what do you think about the Christ? And honestly, like, that's the most important question we could ever be asked. What do you think about the Christ? Like, everything depends on how you answer that. Like, no one can be saved who fails that test. As James Kaufman in his commentary on this text puts it, he says, to recognize and hail Christ as God come in the flesh this is the beginning of eternal life. Without that perception, man must forever remain guilt-ridden, soul-blinded, and condemned forever. By propounding that question, it would seem that Christ, even at that late hour, was trying to relieve the sad condition of those evil men. And so he asked them, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And I kind of feel for the Pharisees a little bit here, because they're technically not wrong in their response, saying that the Christ is the son of David? Because technically Jesus is in the lineage of David, you know, being his great, 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 great grandson. But it's messed up because Jesus is like, well, if he's David's lineage, how come David worships me as Lord? Like, what's up with that? Can you imagine worshiping your great, great grandson as Lord? Maybe some of you do. So it's messed up unless... David's Lord existed long before his lineage ever did. Unless he pre-existed David and actually has authority over him. See, Jesus put the people in his day in a place where they had to constantly go back and rethink everything they thought about Jesus and God. And honestly, we got to do that today. Jesus asked them a question, who is the Christ? Who do you say he is? And we got to answer that today. And if you're in here this morning and you're saying, well, Jesus is is my savior. He came and died for me so that I might live. Well, what are some tangible evidences that you truly believe that? I think there's, there's two things. You love the Lord your God, with all your heart, all your soul, and with all your mind, and you love your neighbor as yourself. Let's let's stand together. Before, before we respond, I want to just close with uh, an illustration from, from John Piper to help tie all this together. And it's a really great picture he paints here, and Maybe it'll be helpful for you. I know it's helpful for me to to bow your heads or, or close your eyes so you can really picture this. The band's just gonna play a little bit behind me as we go through this here. But Now imagine a scroll like the one that John sees in Revelation chapter five. And the story of God's acts and purposes in history are told on this scroll, along with God's commandments and purposes. Matthew 7 and Romans 13, they tell us that when the people of God love their neighbor as they love themselves, the purpose of this scroll is being fulfilled. Its aim is being expressed visibly and manifested practically so that people can see our good deeds and give glory to Father in heaven. And so the scroll is leading to love. But then Jesus gives us an incredible perspective. He lifts us out of history and out of the world for a moment and shows us the entire scroll from a distance. Now we can see it all. The law, the prophets, the Old Testament, the history, the story of redemption, the purposes and acts of God. And we see the entire scroll and we see at the top, it's hanging by two golden chains. One chain fastened to each end of the scroll handles. And then Jesus lifts our eyes up to heaven and we see the chains disappear into heaven. Then he takes us up to heaven and he shows us the ends of the chains and they're fastened to the throne of God. One chain fastened to the right arm of the throne where the words are inscribed, you shall love the Lord with all your heart, all your soul and all your mind. And the other chain is fastened to the left arm of the throne where the words are inscribed, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus turns to you and he says, the whole scroll, the whole law, the whole history of redemption and all my father's plans hang on these two great sovereign purposes of God. That he be loved by his people and that his people love each other. See, God's word for us this morning is that we take with tremendous seriousness how we deal with love on the North Shore and in our everyday lives. That we let these commandments to love God and love others stun us and remake our priorities. That we get alone with him and deal with him about these things. We wrestle with them. That we not assume that we fully know what our love is or that it has the proper centrality in our lives. He's saying all of scripture, all of my plans for history, for how you ought to live, hang on these two great purposes, that he be loved with all our hearts and that we love one another as ourselves. Is it gonna be costly? Probably. Will it be risky? Yeah. Will it push you out of your comfort zone? No doubt. Will it be hard? Yeah. But it'll absolutely be worth it. And honestly, the payoff isn't worth comparing to the temporary struggles we're gonna have now because the payoff is eternal life with God. And that's worth living for, if you ask me. Let me pray. Jesus, we just oh, we need your help so bad in this. We can't do this without you. We just ask that your love that you have for us would just stir up an affection in our hearts to want to love you in return and love our neighbors in return, Lord. I pray for those in here who just have really rough experiences with their neighbors and loving their neighbors is really hard because they've been wounded deeply by someone. I just pray that you would reveal the amazing grace that you have for us in their hearts so that you might help empower us to love our neighbors well, even when we feel like they don't deserve it sometimes. Would you just remind us daily of what you've done for us, that you came and you died and we didn't deserve it because you loved us so much. So God, would you just stir our affections for you, help us love you more than we do, God, and pray these things in your great name, amen.